What got me interested in uh, researching designing for happiness and was there a link is simply, I think it's rooted in observing the way different people um, react to different uh, built environments. Hi listeners, welcome to a brand new episode of Designing for Happiness. I'm your host, Brandon Coates. And for this week's episode, we have our guest, Misen Fontaine, who is the Executive Director at Design Arts Seminar, where they provide continuing education courses for design professionals. We talked about his point of view on this relationship between design and happiness and well-being, and what role Design Arts Seminar plays in educating design professionals on the, on the topic of um, designing for solving societal issues whether it's for designing for equity or designing for sustainability. It's been really fun interviewing me, San Fontaine, for this episode, so hopefully you guys enjoy it as well. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. How are you, Brendan? I'm great, I'm great as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, thank you for joining. I'm very happy you could take the moment to be interviewed for the podcast so i'm very grateful for that of course yes so um i want to start with, the, with some questions but before do you mind now briefly presenting yourself so tell me a bit more about you and what you do uh sure so i am executive director for design arts seminars mm-hmm. and we help uh, architects and designers leverage uh, the power of design and architecture to solve societal issues so it can be environmental, societal, so climate crisis, homelessness, poverty, um, and a long list of other societal issues <laughs> we are facing. Yeah. Great. And for you, what does it mean to be happy? <laughs> for me personally, being yes. happy is, is being at peace uh, with the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, is this intrinsic a uh, feeling of uh, being at peace with the world, as I just said, and mm-hmm. and um, intrinsic feeling of emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the way I would define it. Great, great. Okay, <laughs> I want to start with my first question to to know, find out a bit more about your background and what I mean. So you work at Design Art Seminar. And I want to know, okay, how you get, how did you get started there in the first place? What brought you to Design Art Seminar? So, it's long story short. Uh, I was born in France, mm-hmm. and um, one thing led to another. I studied international business and marketing uh, there in Paris. Moved to the United States and started as an intern at mm-hmm. Design Art Seminars twenty plus years ago. Um, and now own the company. What nice. brought me to the to design art seminars uh, is what attracted me to that particular firm is the combination of uh, working with architects and designers, mm-hmm. working with uh, learning and education at large for mm-hmm. uh, adults and um at the time, we also did a lot of study tools, so bringing groups of architects and designers to different countries to see how architecture and design is um, implemented and leveraged in those uh, other countries to help uh, people who live there thrive and live live their best lives. So 
So what brought me to design arts, I think combination of my love for learning, my love of education, and what I've experienced about the built environment, which is it can elevate us or, or not. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of relates to my next question that I had for you as well, because I remember, you know, I, I noticed that you love to write articles on the blog for design arts. So I've been reading some of the articles as well. And I remember you mentioned that you started researching the, the topic of designing for happiness as well. Coincidentally, as well, the same name as the podcast I have. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, in your opinion, what's this relationship between design and happiness and well-being? And what motivates you or what inspired you to start researching this topic of designing for happiness? All right. So let me start with, with the last question. What got me interested in uh, researching designing for happiness and was there a link is simply, I think it's rooted in observing the way different people um, react to different uh, built environments. One thing that struck me is a very everyday experience. I was back in, in France with my family and um, we had parked in the parking lot, in the underground parking lot of a luxury hotel. Mm -hmm. And when we didn't realize that, when so we went and visited the town, when it was time to go back and pick up the car, my father and my sister were with me, stopped. They felt intimidated by having to go through the lobby of a luxury hotel, it intimated them. It wasn't a space oh. they are used to navigating mm -hmm. and that stopped them. And I thought, wow, this is this is huge because here we're talking about, would be my, my family's working class family, but it's still a privileged white French family. I mean, by all, mm. by all accounts, um, privileged. If for them having to navigate the lobby of a luxury hotel could stop them in their tracks, then imagine what the same built environment could do to people who don't have that baseline of privilege. Exactly. And how, if you go into a building for an interview, or if you have to every day go to a university where the built environment is designed in such a way that you don't feel welcome or comfortable in it, mm -hmm. then what will it do to your success in life? What will it do to your ability to, um, navigate different spaces and, and to thrive. So that observation yeah. got me thinking, once again, if at my level, it can have an impact on people I, I am, you know, I'm in my, my family members, then what does it do to the rest of the world? What does it do to people who are disenfranchised? What does it do to other people? Um, and then turns out, I found out that sometimes it is by design that some places are um, unwelcoming. Uh, they are yes. meant to be unwelcoming to maybe homeless people sleeping on a park bench mm -hmm. or unwelcoming to human beings sitting on a window ledge uh, in a city setting on a particular building. So it just opened my mind to the extent Open the mind to the fact that it's not happenstance if the built environment is supporting 
of us as human beings, as we work, live, love, heal, whatever it is we do every day, or whether it's designed to get in the way of us doing that. So that's part of the answer. I'm not sure I remember the other question. So if you want to look me back. Yes, um, I think my other question was, what's your opinion? I mean, yeah, I kind of answered that as well. What's your opinion? What's your view between this relationship between design and happiness and well-being? And I mean, I honest, I also wonder, I mean, so you're not a designer. So you, you haven't studied any design career. Why don't you, why haven't you started anything related to that as well? I mean, you've, you clearly have an, a passion or an interest for design. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you're right. I am not an architect by training. I'm not an interior designer by training. The, the people I work with and the people we, we serve, they are licensed architects and designers, mostly in the United States. Uh, at the time, one of my roles as executive director for, for design arts is to curate which topics we will offer to our list of clients as part mm -hmm. of their lifelong learning uh, needs. So we, I had partnered with a subject matter expert, uh, Lynn uh, Wilkinson, who is uh, a licensed designer. And she's the one who developed the course on designing for happiness. And it's in the course of working with her on that, that we realized, wait a minute, there is a very large body of research that ranges from newer research, such as neuroesthetics, neuroscience, mm -hmm that shows the power of the built environment on the way we behave, the way we feel, the way we uh, think. And then there is older research around color psychology, uh, yes, yes. things of that nature that also point to the built environment, the rooms we spend time in, willingly or not, <laughs> how much that really deeply affects us and will determine different outcomes. I mean, can you imagine, we just had a course um, on low-income housing and how the built environment for people exposed to that type of environment because of the economic situation they find themselves in is going to further contribute to making it difficult for them to thrive in life. Yeah. Yeah. So you're exposed to that for 15, 20 years of your life. It makes it that much harder for you to mm -hmm. get to get ahead just because of the effect of that built environment. And it's not a built environment that elevates you. And, and that's actually the word that uh, Kia Witherspoon uses when she talks about interior design. It's not elevating your experience as a human being. It's, it's sometimes um, purposely designed to- Keep you there. Make you feel uncomfortable. Interesting. So, I mean, as well, besides the course on designing for happiness, what other um, what other ways does Design Art Seminar also help educate design professionals on this topic of designing and well-being and happiness? Um, so, I think it's part for for me the 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 designing for happiness is part of a much larger conversation mm -hmm. around around equity around. Um, around sustainability as well, to a very large uh, extent, around values. I mean, architecture for a very long time and to this day plays a very aspirational role. We see a building and it mm -hmm. inspires or aspires uh, mm -hmm. us to behave differently. Like if you go to a church setting, for example, churches are specifically designed to make you feel a particular way 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's the type of environment that you visit, you will uh, experience that. But the same is true from any other type of environment. So for me, the designing for happiness was part of the sustainability conversation. It was part of the equity conversation. And when we started to look at the other topics that we offered uh, to architects, even before the idea of designing for happiness came to mind, a lot of those topics were already linked. We did classes on biophilia. Uh, So there is a lot of research out there around simply people in a hospital having Mm -hmm. views of nature will heal faster. So biophilia had been uh, on our list of programs, um, trauma-informed design. So how do you design for people who might be in a homeless shelter temporarily, uh, for example, or if women who, who are abused and or men who are abused and end up in, in a shelter, same thing. How do you create those environments so that it, it supports them as they go through that uh, patch in their, in their lives? We have done a lot of courses around uh, active design. Uh, the 15-minute city, all of those topics, when you look at it, they will link back to well-being, the well-being of the end users and whether the end users will actually use them or not. I mean, we're finicky creatures, right? We we either feel comfortable or we don't. And you can navigate a city and you'll see one park where everybody gravitates to that place because it feels right, it feels Mm -hmm. comfortable. We feel protected, we feel nurtured. And another park where people will avoid it. It's it's a stage, It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's decoration, but nobody uses it because we don't feel as protected physically or psychologically in that particular environment. So though we only had one class on designing for happiness, a long list of topics link back to that same idea. Because happiness is very hard to, and a lot of architects actually push back when we uh, created the class. Like, well, that's not my job. My job (laughs) is not to design for happiness. Like this is a difficult conversation. This is, uh, it's not architecture. It's, you know, what is happiness Mm -hmm. to your point? You asked me, how do I define happiness? It's 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 a bit tricky uh, because what happiness is to me, what makes me happy in the built environment might not make you happy. Exactly. Uh, but when well done, in the context of um, of any built environment, then there are baseline things that, generally speaking, tend to make humans more um, likely to be happy or experience this intrinsic feeling of, of well-being uh, that we talked about earlier. Yes, I, that kind of reminds me of a research that I was reading as well. I don't know if you, if you know Anne Sussman. She did a, many, a lot of research about biometric and eye-tracking um, systems as well. So kind of researching how the built environment, how people perceive the built environment and kind of how, how they those different spaces make them feel welcome or not. Kind of places that have more... Um, kind of more places than tall buildings, glass towers. People don't feel as attracted to be in those places because it's it doesn't really make them feel anything inside. So compared to that, people are more, more comfortable in places where there's more variety or places that um, there's something that attracts their eyes as well to, to look at those places. So I think that that's very interesting. And I also remember that you mentioned The Architecture of Happiness, the book by yeah. Alain de Button. Yes, I'm actually reading that as well. So yeah. it's very, very interesting, interesting book. 
Yeah, well, I think that's one of the first books that I that I came across on the topic, and I thought mm-hmm. it was a very brave. I mean, I just love the title, "The Architecture of Happiness." Yes, I love the 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 the, the play on words, but it also puts the finger on what is the role of ha- of architecture, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, maybe less now than before, and I think it once again circles back around to this idea of sustainability. But you do have some architects who are very well known. But it goes into this architecture for the sake of architecture, not architecture for the sake of the people who live, love, yes. work, play, mm-hmm. heal, die in those places. It's just for the architect, for them to make a name for themselves, you know, this architecture type approach to things. Mm-hmm. It's more on the art, sculpture, art side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we need that as well. But for everyday life, everyday living, um, it's it's a vastly different uh, proposition, and I think we need a built environment that nurtures us every single day, whether it's at home, at work, yes, or in the cities yes. we, we we navigate. Yes, because I remember in that book, I think the chapter was ideals of a home. That they yeah, Malin mentioned the um, a certain buildings that Le Corbusier had made for some workers, and. He designed those buildings in a specific way, but those, but those workers were accustomed to a different design of how they how their homes were back in their countryside. So they kind of modified those buildings to feel make them feel at home because it wasn't them that had that view of how architecture should be done. It was Le Corbusier kind of imposing his ideas on on those buildings, but those people that are living in those buildings weren't feeling at home. They kind of modified that as well because I think it's really interesting to kind of. Um, look architecture not just for the sake of doing architecture but for the sake of people that will be inhabiting those spaces as well i mean ultimately that's what it should be about right exactly mm-hmm. about people and and sometimes i think i i don't think it's on purpose but sometimes it feels like the people are the ones uh being forgotten in the story of the built environment sometimes i, I i'm once again i'm not myself an architect but from from a user uh or someone who experiences the built environment, you do get the impression that the entire team forgot that people were going to live in those spaces. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is no windows or there is no there is no daylighting. There is no view of nature. There is no there is none of that. Or there's just no nowhere to feel protected. Uh, so yeah, it does become I think it does become a greater conversation around the role of architecture. And to your point around um, having to retrofit a space so that it feels like home. We, we did a training with uh, Dr. Toby Israel and she wrote a book on design psychology. Uh, and yes. I, I, I'm not gonna do it justice, but the basic core idea is to reconnect with those things that mean home to you, mm-hmm. which to me, being from Normandy, Northern France, there are some very specific architectural features that make me feel at home. And, and I, I can see that those are things that I've gravitated towards in the different places I've lived in the United States, uh, just because they nurture me, they make me feel safe, they make me feel um, taken care of, and they, yeah. they feel um, familiar. Um, and that's on the residential level. I think on a city level, it's entirely different. Um, 
I think it's the, the, the symbology of the buildings. The, mm -hmm. the, the, if you look at the built environment as one, as the context in which we navigate everyday lives, then what we see, I think it influences the way we, we feel in our willingness to go out there into that world. A very basic example, before I moved to where I live now, I lived in Atlanta near a penitentiary. It was a um, neighborhood that was being uh, gentrified and there was nowhere to walk to. And walking anywhere was meaning walking by the penitentiary, walking by gas stations, no sense of place, no sense of where I was in the world. I could have been in any city. So I was not willing to walk, you know, maybe one kilometer to go to the local park. Even though when I lived in Washington, D.C., there was a completely different dynamic around me where very inspiring buildings was um, a different. And there I was willing to go and walk through that uh, city to go where I needed to be. So you, you reap the benefits. My point with all this is if I'm willing to walk and experience the city, that means I'm going to be active. That will have an impact on my level of well-being. That's going to mm -hmm. mean I'm going to be outdoors. I'm going to be looking at nature or uh, whatever there is to look at. That's going to influence my well-being. If I leave my home, there is nowhere for me to go other than a gas station or walk by the penitentiary before I can get anywhere. It's probably not the most elevating uh, experience um, and if you want again happen to belong to a disenfranchised population it may really create some level of, of stress and anxiety that that's the only place you can walk to go to see every day so it it has a compounding effect I think uh, yeah yeah, so I, I, one of the things that you mentioned that I realized that happened to myself as well was, for example, when you, you have a certain notion of what is what home feels to you because you were born and raised in Normandy, France, and then moving to a different country is everything so different. I remember one thing I noticed um, last year was that I started incorporating different colors in my designs at architecture school. And I remember one of the professors mm -hmm. asked me, what's the meaning behind these colors? So I didn't realize it at the moment, but then I started asking myself, why exactly am I using, why? Because it started suddenly that I started using colors. Before that, I wasn't using any colors in my design, but suddenly I started using colors. So I asked myself, what's the reason behind these colors? And then I realized, yes, I was born in Curacao, Willemstad. It's just a country very colorful in the Caribbean. So every single house has a different color. The city is so colorful. So now being in the pandemic and quarantine, I'm in my studio apartment. Everything is white. All the walls, all the walls are completely white. So I started realizing that I'm missing those colors. So unintentionally, unconsciously, I started applying that as well in my designs because I believe that, okay, this is home to me. This is how I feel at home. And I started kind of applying that as well to, to my design. So I find it that very, very interesting that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the, it, it is interesting in that I think the, the missing piece of the puzzle here as it relates to designing for happiness is that this has to be intentional, right? And it, it has to be like for you, in your case, uh, as an architect, as a designer, as, as someone starting to um, become active in that in that in that role it's it's creating that space for the people that you that you that you will be serving um, I think too often a, a space could be very aesthetically pleasing 
and again, that's debatable, right? What's yes. beautiful to you may not be beautiful to me, but let's assume it's a generally acceptable, aesthetically pleasing space. Mm -hmm. But it could me, it could leave me feeling nothing. It could leave me feeling, okay, well, this is a nice space, but it's not nurturing me. It's not supporting mm -hmm. me in any way. Uh, when in your case, if you do end up living in a place that you've designed with the colors that make you feel at home, definitely uh, you stand to reap the benefits of being in such an environment rather than one that, like the one you described, feel maybe more sterile. It's not where you necessarily feel more comfortable. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have a question that I mean for at the, the courses, the webinars you guys do at Design Arts, um, for example, designing for equity and sustainability and such. Do you guys also incorporate what people think? I mean, not people that aren't design professionals, but people um, living those spaces, what they think about that. So the architects or the design professionals can also have a point of view from their side. <laughs> I think you, you put your finger on, 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 on one of the biggest issues is that a lot of times, and it's not, it's, this is not meant to be a blanket statement or pointing mm -hmm. the finger at anybody, but a lot of times, especially when you're talking about disenfranchised communities, they are not at the table. Mm -hmm. It's being designed mm -hmm. for them exactly. rather than with them. Mm -hmm. So what we do mention in some of the trainings is that bringing the stakeholders, whether they are the people who will be living in the building, maintaining it, uh, building it, uh, this, there should be, to some extent, some level of co-creation and mm -hmm. some level of at least consultation. But unfortunately, a lot of times, those people are not are not present. Mm -hmm. and, and as you know, architecture is, is, is not a very diverse field. It's not a very <laughs> diversity in architecture is, is solely missing. It's not, this is not news. It's just, and it's slowly changing. But so it, it does just, make yes. it harder for an architecture firm to design a space um, and think of how that space will be experienced by all people, mm -hmm. not by just people like them mm -hmm. uh, or will it be used or is it just a showpiece? It's like, oh, yeah, this yeah. is a great public part. But for whatever reason, people don't feel comfortable because um, some, obviously some things were not done uh, to support people feeling comfortable or maybe made purposely uncomfortable because they don't want um, people to gather or mm -hmm. hang out in mm -hmm. that park. So architecture can be used both ways, right? Can yeah, be used yeah. to make us feel Comfortable or uncomfortable, welcome or unwelcome. Um, yeah. And do you guys at Design Arts, is it those, those webinars, are those specifically for design professionals or can students also be present in those? Um, can, can students also sign up for those webinars? Uh, yeah, they can sign up. If we have students that reach out to us and they want to attend, we, we, we grant them in uh, okay. without any. any Large, uh, but they are primarily geared towards uh, design professionals, people who've mm -hmm. been practicing architecture and design for quite a while. One of the intents that sort of um, uh, under underscores the entire series is to, beyond leveraging the power of design and architecture to solve issues, also create awareness, which I know is a low bar, but trying to create awareness as to what the impact is of those uh, different designs that people 
um, put into the world because a lot of a lot of work goes into it. It's just I think sometimes there is just a lack of awareness of how it impacts other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it stops. But to answer your question, yes, if if we have students who want to attend and they reach out, we we will gladly. Um, have them participate because that's that's where it starts right those conversations exactly. yes mm-hmm. it should start with uh, emerging professionals who want mm-hmm. to see and do things differently and realize that this actually is that people's happiness or at least their well-being uh is is part of uh the scope of the work mm-hmm. that that they are charged with Yes, because person, I personally feel that, for example, in my university, there are no courses that kind of educate you about those, those, the, how people perceive the built environment. And those topics of, for example, what you guys do with change by design, the series of change by design, none of those topics are kind of um, talked about in the, in the courses at the university. So I feel like there's kind of those, those important things that are missing in our current education that I feel students should be able to also be able to... Um, start with um, those educating themselves on those topics because when they start designing for when they start as professionals they already have those incorporated with their their, their education yeah and I, it's funny you mentioned that because it's it's it, I, I had assumed for me not having gone through training as an architect or a designer granted I've been around architects and designers for the past 20 25 years but still there was this assumption that every architect, as some level of general awareness around those things. But um, I, I wonder if this links back to this idea that architecture and design is a luxury. It's for mm. the privileged few. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what we're starting to see is this conversation is slowly shifting yes. and realizing that architecture, design, urban planning, all of those things should support everybody not just the lucky few who happen to be able to uh, afford the services of, a, of an architect or designer to develop the the house of their dream because architecture is everywhere if whether exactly. it's poorly done or not it's been be- designed by somebody whether mm-hmm. it's the products in our homes or the entire playground that our cities and suburbs are somebody put some thoughts into it and it's just a matter of shifting the needle a little bit Mm-hmm. Uh, one way or the other, so that people think of the ramification of the designs uh, that they create, so that it positively impacts people who live there. Um, and, and sometimes that seems to be enough to thought, which <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably not, probably not ideal. <laughs> no, uh, I remember you mentioned Kia Weatherspoon as well. Um, when I read your article when you mentioned her and I started researching her work as well, which is very interesting while well, she talks about the um, designing for equity, which is um, really, really, really interesting. And I also contacted her to be able to talk about this topic of designing for happiness and well-being to talk about this um, topic as well. So maybe we'll have her for a future episode to to discuss yeah, this. Yeah, we love chatting with Kia. She's wonderful. And I think Kia's firm, so she's been at this for many, I think nearly 10 years, if not more. But mm-hmm. her firm, Determined by Design, is the, the firm I was talking about who does a lot of work in, I believe it's low-income housing. Mm-hmm. But her entire, and I'm not speaking on her behalf, but the the my understanding of what they are aiming to do is really 
elevating, and I think uh, that's that's the word she uses, elevating the experience of people living in those spaces, um, because just like anyone else, they, they do deserve to um, to have that. And, exactly. and there is no reason why they shouldn't. There's no reason why um, they shouldn't have that. I mean, I remember as a, as a kid, once again in France, we were not poor, but we lived in social housing, so we weren't rich either. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly the, 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 the way those places felt. The social housing mm-hmm. in France, they feel the same way as they do here. It's not a place where you can feel, at least it's not a place where I felt I could thrive. Yeah. So it yeah. always felt very um, limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think you'd love having a conversation with, with her. <laughs> and I think it goes back to, because this is another argument we get a lot. Well, my job is not to design for happiness. I have bills to pay. I need to mm-hmm. create revenue. I need to, mm-hmm. my clients don't care about this. I think the point, the example of what Kia and her firm and her team does goes to show that you can do the right thing and do very well, have a thriving business and do Mm -hmm. the right thing by other people and bring positive things into the world without sacrificing one for the other. One or the other, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's very important, yeah. So I kind of want to um, to start kind of wrapping um, wrapping up the, the interview. I wanted to ask you, what's a favorite book of yours that you would recommend to the, to the listeners? Um, interesting, as it relates to, I mean, there's one you mentioned, Alain de Beton, so the architecture mm-hmm. of happiness is, is a good one. Um, I wonder if I, I don't know if it's a, uh, it's not a book, but it's a report. It's a world uh, happiness report. Yeah. Mm-hmm. World happiness report is what it is. And I think I mentioned that uh, in one, in of, one of your articles as well. Yes. Yeah. Because I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting way of framing what we consider successful, what, what we consider successful in and that world happiness report changes the question from looking at the gross domestic product of countries mm-hmm. to looking at the happiness of the people who live there by simply asking them to rank their own well-being. Uh, and yeah. a lot of that, they link it all back to the built environment. Mm. So I think for somebody who's really interested in the impact of the built environment on uh, people, everywhere across the globe, not just, you know, wherever uh, uh, your listeners happen to be, then that's one way to start looking at it differently and measuring it and having that as the criteria for making decisions about the built environment. The the gross domestic product is important, Mm -hmm. but it's it's not the silver bullet. Exactly. Yeah. To to gauge happiness of people, for sure. Okay, it's great. Okay, and what's one advice you have for the listeners? Maybe I mean, uh, on a personal level, I mm-hmm. think one ex- exercise that's pretty interesting is to, and that came from the the workshop we did on design psychology with with Doctor Israel, is think back. Think back to your childhood. Think back to the places where you lived, mm-hmm. and and the things that that that's, 
Where were the spaces where you felt most comfortable? What's nurturing to you? Uh, at this particular point, what we each, most of us, if we're lucky, have control over is the built environment where we choose to live. Of course, that's not true of everybody. Mm-hmm. But there are small things that you can do if you know that X, Y, or Z makes you feel happy. Let's say you mentioned color in your in your case. Well, if color really means that much to you, there is small ways to incorporate things in your everyday home, at least, mm-hmm. that can bring you that level of, of, um, of well-being. So I would say doing an exercise that goes back to cataloging the mm-hmm. features of the places you live, then that made you feel uh, better or good. Um, it could be smell, it could be sound, it could be architectural features, it could be a long list of things. Yeah. Um, usually there are small things. Um, <laughs> that's the fun, that's, what, that's what I think is interesting. Usually those features are quite um, minute. They, they, mm-hmm. They're not necessarily the huge things. They're not usually the splashy things. They're usually things that for whatever reason made us feel safe or comfortable. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that's an interesting exercise. And maybe they'll have the same realization you had, which is, oh, well, here is why colors is popping up in my, in my work because yeah. it means something to you. It means something, exactly. I think that I th- you mentioned that as well in one of your articles, when you, the feeling of having, being able to close your windows at night made you feel safe in your, house, yeah. in your home, but not being able to do so in an apartment that has no op- windows that doesn't open, you can, you're not able to do that. So really those small details really can have an effect on, on us. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It's, yeah. it's huge because it's it goes because it brings you back to that psychological safety. It's not a matter of physical safety. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of the home I live in now. I can feel physically safe, but it's not the same feeling as that I had as a kid yeah. shutting those shutters. And in France, those shutters shut. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> the American shutters that for the most part don't operate and are just glued on the building for decoration. Mm-hmm. They're actually shut. And when those shutters are shut, nobody's going anywhere. You're not going out, you're not coming in. They're shot. Yeah, they are small things. Another one was just the shape of windows. In Normandy, they just have this slight curve to them. And it's very, I couldn't have never pointed that out until after I'd moved away for many, many years and realized that to me, this makes me feel more comfortable. But this is residential yeah. stuff. The same thing applies in, in office environments. I mean, mm-hmm a lot of research done around people going in for an interview and being thoroughly intimidated by the space mm-hmm. because they're not used to navigating that. If you live in social housing, for example, and the space is what it is, we all have a pretty good idea of what those spaces look like. If all of a sudden you go to a different space and you're not used to navigating that or to a luxury hotel or whatever, yeah. it, it yeah. can really throw you off your game which then mm-hmm. further that cycle of, of inequity. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> those are my opinions on it. I'm <laughs> definitely looking forward to hearing what other people uh, have to say you. about it. So, yes. And if people want to get in touch with you or follow the work you do, where can they find you? Um, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place. LinkedIn. Um, okay. My name, M-I-C-E-N-E, last name Fontaine, Down that many of them out there as far as I know. So if you put my name on Google, <laughs> you should find my, my LinkedIn profile. So perfect. Absolutely. 
Okay, so great. Thank you very much. Thank you again for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation to have this conversation with you. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Brendan. <laughs> Good being with you. With that, we have reached the end of another episode of Designing for Happiness. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or hitting the follow button on Spotify. Also, if you have questions, thoughts, or comments regarding the show, you can send me a voice message on anchor.fm slash happydesign. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Designing for Happiness is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anchor.fm, or wherever you find your podcast.